it's about how do you create a space where people can talk about their problems and that you help them to feel heard and listened to but move them into what can you do about it, not to tell them what to do but to help them to problem solve. And so it's not advice giving but it's looking at what are the options and and how do you put them into action. And so when we look at why lead is so important in the workplace, you know, that that supportive leadership in being able to to coach and mentor people in, in helping them to solve their own problems is huge. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. guest today is Melissa Harris, who served in the Australian Army as a psychologist for six years with operational service on multiple rotations to the Middle East and East Timor. Melissa shares her leadership insights from that unique perspective as a psychologist alongside those on the battlefield. Since leaving the Army, Melissa has worked with organisations with high-risk employment categories that include the New South Wales Fire and Rescue Service, Electricity Line Workers, Special Forces Units and Criminal Prosecutors. Melissa's psychology practice is focused on helping individuals and workplaces to perform their optimum through proactive skills-based training and counselling. She also maintains a private practice, assisting individuals experiencing difficulties with anxiety, trauma, emotion regulation and stress tolerance. What I loved about Melissa's conversation was the insights of leadership and most importantly, mental health from service alongside service men and women on operation. Let's get right in. Mel Harris, it's great to have you on the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Thank you so much for giving up your time today. Thank you for having me. So the question I ask my guests always, first up, is how do you end up joining the service, in your case, the Australian Army? Well, it was partly a good career choice, you know, as a psychologist, that you've got to do a fair amount of extra education after you finish your bachelor's degree. And the Army offers the internship, or it did before that program closed. And so part of it was it's a really good paid internship opportunity. But I grew up in a house that where Dad loved the Army. You know, I came home from school once. I was in primary school, and there was a big Army tipper in the driveway, and it had a big rock stuck in it. Dad had somehow gotten a group of engineers to come out and repair a bridge and <laughs> You know, so uh, I, it was something that was always on the radar as uh, a group where I, there's something about the brotherhood, you know, and I wanted to be part of that and part of something bigger. Mm. And so doing my internship as a psychologist in the Army was, was an easy choice. Yeah. So when did you join? And, and I mean, the psychologist is different. It's not what, not a career path that we assume is part of the Army, but, of course, it is an intrinsic part. What does a psychologist in the Army do? I think if you drill it down to its essence, the role of a military psychologist is to help workers to cope with stress, mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind of very interesting, stressful environments. Historically, when you look at the role of psychology in the army, you know, we go back to Rwanda and how those who deployed to Rwanda came home and their mental illnesses that, that came from that deployment. And so while 
army psychology had played a big role in recruitment, it became a very important role as far as post-operational mental health support. Mm. And so there was a huge change in how we managed mental health in the army as a result of those deployments. And so I know that you wouldn't guess it from the outside looking in, but the military has a massively proactive approach to mental health Mm. around providing skills to people before putting them under pressure resources while they're under pressure and then screening processes after they've been under pressure so that we can identify those who aren't coping early and plug them into treatment Mm. to try and prevent some of the impacts of mental illness. Mm. I want to unpack some of that because I think mental health of our veterans versus mental health full stop is such an important part of getting on in the world right now. Mm. Can I take you back to though early in the Army career who were those leadership heroes, influences on you in terms of leadership? And because the psychologists are part of that chain of command, so there must be some element of leadership around that, I guess. Absolutely. I um, had the privilege of working with Steph Hodson, who was recently the head of Open Arms, a veteran counselling service, and she's now moved to Relationships Australia. She was my CEO for a couple of years and just mover and shaker, you know, she managed to get a lot of projects over the line that were really important for mental health, but also Mm. she just, she knew who you were, she knew your strengths, knew your weaknesses. And as far as a military psychologist to look up to, you know, she she was fantastic. And Mm. being mentored and supported by her quite early on in my career was wonderful. Mm. So important, isn't it, to have somebody who actually knows your strengths and weaknesses that can actually, you know, work with those and help you actually sort of, I guess, bring those strengths to the the fore when you've got challenges, but also work out how you might be able to overcome some of those weaknesses or challenges as such. Mm, mm. Mm. What I really liked about Steph is she was more of a seat forgiveness Mm. kind of decision maker. And so she made decisions based on what she she thought was right Mm. for the problem she faced. And part of that meant accepting a little bit more risk than potentially we would at the moment. And to that end, you know, I was deployed as a lieutenant. I've been in the army for about 14 months when I went to the Middle East to do my first force extraction task, doing the return to Australia site screens for a couple of different battle groups. And it's just, she had resources, she had demands and she plugged those resources in and It's something that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, thinking about this podcast and about the relationship between leadership and mental health and how trusting your people and accepting a little bit of risk are really important characteristics of that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I look forward to unpacking a bit more of that. So you served in a couple of operational roles in both the Middle East and East Timor. Mm -hmm. What was that like as a psychologist? Demanding, challenging pushed my clinical skills to their limit. Mm. I mean, part of that acceptance of risk meant that probably I deployed at times in my career where I I shouldn't have been the only psychologist. So I was the battle group psych in Timor for about six months and I'd been registered for about three months. So I was two and a half years into my psychology career and I'm the only psych. Mm overseas, you know, supporting a battle group. And I knew what I didn't know Mm -hmm. in that, but it was also the making of me as a psychologist, having to stand on my own two feet and working with an infantry battalion 
where if you didn't shout, you wouldn't be heard. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to learn to to figure out what my opinion was and to back it mm. and to become quite vocal about what I thought was right. Mm. Have you got an example of that that you can share where you had to sort of push? Because, you know, it goes to the heart of, I guess, leadership being about influencing others, isn't it? Mm. And I think it's so context dependent. Mm. You know, I think about that deployment and I remember the tipping point with the CEO where he kind of looked at me for the first time and took stock of what I was saying and one of it was in an O group, someone was making a crack about psychology being a black art. Mm. And I said, yeah, but I'm an artist. <laughs> and everyone kind of looked at me and just that little joke was enough for them to kind of go, all right, well, she's she's got enough kind of confidence to back herself mm. and to put those ideas across. The problem was I brought that ballsy attitude back into Australia and I didn't get recommended for promotion the first year that I was back in Australia, I was in a, at Kapuka, you know, in training command and you really have to adapt your communication style given the context that you're in and being overly aggressive, which is really important, working with an infantry battalion is just not appropriate hmm. in other contexts and it, it took a, a little while to figure out how to adapt that. Still argue for what you want but not do it in a way where you put people offside. Yeah. And that's a skill, isn't it, for all leaders to be adaptive to that context and environment. And, I mean, it goes to the heart, I guess, of uh, of that emotional intelligence, which we've got to grow and develop over time. It's not something that we almost have automatically and yeah. adjust to those circumstances. Yeah. In terms of psychology being a black art, what do you think? Is it really? Because I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I mean, we're talking... This is 2007, Hmm. you know, so this is working with an all-male infantry battalion, you know, in a time where, you know, my partner was a member of that battalion. I didn't meet him on that trip, but later. And I remember him telling me about wearing odd socks, Hmm. doing PT, and he got punched in the stomach while he's doing heaves. And he's like, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) You know, and that's kind of the climate in which, I'm trying to come in and argue around, you know, a more softer approach or, you know, what's best for the individual for the long run. So it was still at the time very much winning people over and then educating them about what's best practice. Mm. So in that sense, how you execute kind of your, your duties is an art, but what you're trying to persuade people to do in that context has to be evidence-informed. You know, it has to be based on solid psychological theory that has been tested to be reasonable. So you have to have good knowledge. (laughs) Mm. But then I think the art is how do you you explain it to decision-makers who've got a completely different Mm. agenda to what you do at times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the black uh, almost implies that it's something that's mystical, but at the end of the day, it's actually it's that people just don't know what the details are, and actually, that's I guess your role as a military psychologist is to is to bring the art of psychology, I guess, from both sides, which is that individual well being, but also how can that contribute to a team outcome? Mm, that's it. Yeah, and it's an interesting role in that you've got a foot in either camp where. Your first client is the army and what does the army need and what does the mission need? Mm. But the individual is also the client as well. 
Mm. And often the needs of those two groups can be different. Mm. Mm. Yeah, some pressure there, I guess. Mm. A lot of pressure at times to do what's right for the army, Mm. which is not always what's right for the individual. Yeah. The well-being of our service men and women and, of course, veterans as well is a topical subject right now. Mm. You had service in the Middle East as well, and, and was that for just the extraction task of bringing people back or was there a, were you there for a longer period of time? I had a couple of trips where I was the embedded site. Mm-hmm. One was the day that I got registered as a site, mm-hmm. so like two years and <laughs> one day I was kind of put on a plane and fortunately, I worked with a great leader, Major Wallace is his name. I don't know what rank he'd be now, but I remember arriving and I was terrified because I knew what I didn't know. And I was worried that I'd be sent out on my own to make all these decisions. But as soon as I arrived in country, he said, everything you write, I will red pen. <laughs> and it was just this great safety net. Hmm. But still, a lot of freedom, got to go around, kind of went to Qatar, was on an oil terminal in the Northern Arabian Gulf, you know, a little bit of travelling around, kind of just dealing with hotspots. So, you know, someone's having a psychotic episode (laughs) in Dubai, go and Mm. assess and make recommendations. Mm. So that was about three months, 2006, 2007. And then I had a six-month trip that was half in TK in Afghanistan, half in Dubai, and that was 2010-11. Yeah. And, and I mean, as a psychologist, you're observing this military organisation come together in all those scenarios, including that sort of oil platform off Iraq and, and places like Qatar, but also in the middle of Afghanistan at Tarankout. Like, what are your observations of our military in terms of how they turn up in, you know, mentally and physically for those that task? You can probably comment more on the mental bit, I imagine, but. I think Australian soldiers are well known for being good problem solvers, being energetic, Mm. having a laugh about things, you know, so that kind of the Anzac spirit around being a larrikin, I think very much comes through in how our troops deal with other forces. Mm. I can't help but think we've got quite an advantage, you know, the, the way that we select and recruit people for the military really creates a good platform for mental health and well-being. Mm. You know, that we recruit people who have a good mental health history, proven resilience under stress depending on how old they are. And so I think about, you know, particularly US forces where they don't have the same stringent requirements that jail or the military is sometimes an option for people and, you see it in, you know, Kandahar, for example. You know, there were places at Kandahar where you weren't to go up at night because of the gang activity from US forces. Mm. Even at Kuwait, we had to carry an air horn if we were going to the ablutions block at night just in case. So you see quite a big difference in just the level of risk and, and safety and trust mm. between different forces like that. Yeah, right. So you served for six years full-time and that included being on staff at the Army's ab initio training for its soldiers at Kapuka near Wagga. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Three years there, that, that sounds like a long time. What are the keys there to building that resilience or that 
you know, that input into people at that particular point in their career right off the bat. There must be some really interesting space to be as, as a psychologist. I loved it. I loved Kapuka. I didn't want to go there. <laughs> I remember sitting down with my career advisor and he asked me, where do I want to go? And I said, you know, Brisbane, of course, like everyone says. And he goes, how do you feel about Kapuka, Mel? And I'm like, well, I feel pretty shit about it, sir, to be honest. And he goes, oh, what about Pucker? And I'm like, mm, Kapuka's sounding better and better. But I loved it. It was a case study in resilience. You know, everyone's under stress. It was like your own reality TV show. Recruits are under stress. Recruit instructors are under stress. Hmm. And I was there in 2009, global financial crisis. Every man and their dog was joining defence in order to have a stable job. And so Kapuka put through about 6,500 recruits that year. Usually it's two to 3,000. So it was just mm. everyone getting smashed. And my job down at the psych cell, you know, there were four of us there at the time, four psychs, and we were assessing recruits who said, I'm not coping with training. And they'd come in and they say things like, you know, I'm stressed and I'm having trouble sleeping and it's hard to concentrate and my hands are shaking and you're like yeah it's just and <laughs> that stress and there was a bit of a, a theme at the time about kind of saying well I'm going to self-harm myself because that's a quick exit mm. and so these were repeat kind of assessments that we were doing and when you look at their background they had very similar backgrounds you know typically young predominantly men 18 to 22 years old and they'd done all right at school but never really applied themselves. They'd had a couple of part-time jobs, but if they didn't like their boss, they quit. Mm. You know, they'd played sport, but they'd never been gutted losing the grand final. And so they arrive at Kapuka without ever having to tolerate feeling bad. Yeah, right. And so a big part of it is, like, the only way you learn how to deal with stress is by being stressed. Like you can only be resilient if you have the opportunity to practice being resilient. Mm. And so we had a whole bunch of guys come through who had never had to tolerate feeling bad. Mm. And because, you know, having a job was their only motivation. And at the time they played full metal jacket on the bus on the way. Right. <laughs> and then you get off the bus and some sergeant's yelling at you. They're like, I don't need a job this bad. Mm. And so they've got no motivation to tolerate feeling bad either. Mm. And so when I think about what is resilience, part of it is skills. Do I know how to cope with feeling bad? But part of it is willingness. Am I prepared to tolerate feeling bad? Because mm. there were heaps of recruits out there who had no skills, but they really wanted to be an Australian soldier, you know, that they had this genuine heartfelt motivation. And so they were a hot mess, but... Recruit instructors were prepared to, to help them to get through because they were prepared to give it a go. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, when we face that challenge sometimes and we believe that nobody's there to help us, but actually the people are there. I think if you're going to build any organisation and people have got to, you know, probably fail first before they can make be successful in that environment, you want an environment where leaders are actually leaning in and saying, I, I my job is here to help you be successful. It's not here to help you fail. That's it, yeah. And lift them up. I think it's a big part of leadership. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. But part of that is creating the why hmm. for people. Like what is the point in suffering? <laughs> <laughs> yes. About having a clear idea of what 
the mission is, what the goal is, what the meaning and purpose is. Mm. And so that's something that I've seen on both sides of the fence. Like those who did it well in uniform and leaders who do it well in the civilian world are ones that can go, here is the point of what we're doing, you know, and then can recognise when people are suffering and kind of acknowledge it and validate it and refocus, this is why we're doing this. Mm. Yeah, great point. So, Mel, we know it doesn't go well all the time. Can you think of a moment where your leadership was really challenged and, and it didn't go so well? I can think of many times. And what did you learn, I guess, is most importantly? So I had a really great case study in kind of the role of good leadership and its relation to performance and mental health. Mm-hmm. So... I was in Timor for about six months and I don't know if you've ever had to suffer through a pulse survey. Like it's human factors of operations. It's it's a monstrosity of a questionnaire and I had to go out to (laughs) all of these infantry soldiers who are angry and bored and get them to fill out this mental health questionnaire and slipped in a little measure of mission command. Mm -hmm. Like is that a leadership style that's familiar to you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, like, and it really just saying that people understand the big picture, you give them resources and you trust them to do their job, basically. Mm. And it was like a real fad at the time and I thought let's do a measure of that and included it. It was really, really interesting to see how those who had leaders who scored higher on this mission command measure had better performance as assessed by the CO, had significantly stronger kind of satisfaction with their career and with the deployment and their mental health scores were much healthier as well. And I remember trying to give a bit of feedback (laughs) to one of the majors who was quite low down, micromanager, tried to be one of the boys that couldn't really walk that line between friendly but not their friend, didn't trust them to do their job and, yeah, just – could not, could not have a conversation with him about it. You know, and it's just when I think about where leadership has fallen down across my career, you know, it's it's where people lack a lot of insight and they're not prepared to reflect about what have they done to contribute. And so you get a real defensiveness and a real blame. Yeah. You know, other people are responsible for this. You know, my company are just a bunch of whinges, not looking into yourself and seeing what have you done that you could improve on. Mm. And, uh, I think if we're going to have success in any endeavour, we've got to have an ability to actually check in on, on what we contributed to it, the challenge or the problem and, you know, be prepared to look at all sides of it rather than just sort of blame somebody else. So, so certainly a passive defensive, aggressive defensive style of behaviour, isn't it? Absolutely. And you mentioned emotional intelligence before, you know, and one of those aspects of emotional intelligence is realistic self-awareness. Like you know your strengths, but you also know where your vulnerabilities are. Mm. And good leaders don't have to be perfect, and being perfect I think is actually problematic. Mm -hmm. But knowing strengths and having a good hard look and being prepared to to accept a bit of responsibility for your own actions, I think, People, they follow that guy over the hill, you know, that mm. that's the one that they follow into battle. Yeah, owning it publicly is so, so important, isn't it, at the end of the day, not in the heat of the moment, but it, mm. in the debrief or whatever it might, opportunity it might be later is saying, actually, I didn't go so well. I, I made a mistake here, guys. I, I need to own it. Yeah. yeah, that's it. 
you made the decision to transition out of full-time service and move into uh, private practice. So what was that like? Overwhelming. <laughs> I missed the team. So I missed kind of turning up at a posting and you're issued with all of these friends. I mean, <laughs> the first job that I had... <laughs> So true. <laughs> oh, man, I miss that so much. Hmm. The first job that I had when I got out of Army was subcontracting for a big employee assistance program provider. And it, just because of the way the appointments were staggered, even though I was in an office with eight other psychologists, it was a month before I met one of those other psychologists. Hmm. And I was so excited to see him. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> hello, I'm Melissa, and put my hand out. And he just went, nope. I don't touch people and he crab walked past me <laughs> the hallway and I just, I went into my office and cried. I'm like, what have I done? What have I done? Mm. So it's just found it a lot lonelier mm. and it took a long time to build up that social network. And I think that's something that veterans really struggle with is about mm. where do you find your mates and mm. where and when do you go to the gym and <laughs> You know, what do I wear to work? Like all of these decisions that you didn't have to make for a substantial period of time now are really quite stressful. Yeah, when you mentioned the gym, it reminds me that, you know, when you're in a unit or on operations, often go to the gym, you'll go with a, you'll go with the same person like for six months mm. every day, mm. pretty much. Mm. You'll go to and have meals together every day with the same people possibly. Yeah. Or maybe different people. But, you know, it's like there is so much of that and, and that is a challenge for veterans when they leave is finding the community, mm. which is the term we kind of use in our culture at the moment about it. It's like how do you find a community and people that are, you know, that just get, get who you are and what you do. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, even just the, the fitness culture, you know, it's so easy to just agree and go with the flow. Like I ran a half marathon from just agreeing. I had a friend who liked to run and, do you want to do 5Ks? All right. 10Ks? All right. 15Ks? All right. Half marathon? All right. <laughs> Didn't want to do the full one? It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Mm. My friend just couldn't get into a rhythm either and so she just, she was uncomfortable and complained and it was, yeah, I was worried that she was going to offer, like, let's do a full marathon and at the end of that, she goes, that was terrible. Let's never do that again. Hmm. And I don't think we ran together after that. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So in the work you're doing now, what are you seeing? I mean, your role is, as a psychologist and you've continued to work with organisations that are, you know, high-risk environment, you know, including Special Forces, New South Wales Fire and Rescue and, you know, criminal prosecutors, et cetera. What are the things you observe there in terms of, mental health, as well as leadership? Mm. So different organisations have got different pressures as far as, you know, when I think about the criminal prosecutors, you know, it's trauma-facing role, but it's also the volume of work that is a huge contributor to their mental illness. Mm. And when I think about the role of leadership, it's more about, it's almost more administrative. How do we make sure that people don't have so much work that they can't recover. Mm. And so it's this constant friction point that I see between resources and mental health within businesses. So a little bit separate to leadership, but 
there's only so much that individual resilience can protect someone against an overwhelming amount of work. Mm. And that's a real challenge for a lot of workplaces at the moment, you know, that COVID has kind of increased demands, kind of recruiting is tough for a lot of organisations, they're running on skeleton staff. And so burnout is something that I'm seeing across the board. Leaders are really helpful in that, in being able to recognise and acknowledge and encourage people to actually take the time off that they need, even though, again, it's at odds with business goals. You know, the more people are off work, kind of the more expensive it is. It's just, it's a real problem that I'm seeing across a lot of organisations as far as we're expecting more using less resources and there's only so much that individual resilience can help someone if Mm. they've got this overwhelming amount of work. Yeah. It's interesting. Resilience has been a hot topic in the workplace for for quite a few years now and some of the approaches I've seen are ones where it's sort of almost like a sheep dip kind of approach to resilience, but it's not that. That actually doesn't work. Just awareness of resilience and what it looks like is not enough. Mm. Just learning how to meditate is not enough. Mm. You know, what are your thoughts around sort of how we create resilience in a team or a workplace or an individual basis? First and foremost, you have to look at the systems, that there are a variety of psychological hazards in the workplace and that's our preventative piece when it comes to mental health. And, you know, there's a new code of practice when it comes to psychosocial hazards at work that's been released by Safe Work, increasing the obligation that workplaces have to identify hazards like role overload, like poor role clarity, I don't understand the boundaries of my role, like exposure to trauma, like not enough leadership support, not enough peer support, bullying and harassment, injustice in the workplace, lots of things that happen at work that cause psychological injuries. And it's not enough to just have an EAP to say, look, we can refer someone out because what you're saying is we're going to wait until you're sick before we provide resources. And so a lot of the time, a lot of the workplaces that I'm working with, I'm looking at the systems that are contributing to mental health as well as the skills that individuals have in order to be resilient to that stress. Mm. Knowing that humans have got human limits, there is only so much that we're supposed to be resilient to and there's a point at which too much resilience creates its own problem. Okay. And so I see people through work cover who are so resilient that they keep trudging even though the workplace is awful. Mm. And so it goes from having a mental health concern and being stressed into being unwell because they've stuck it out for two years, three years at this level. Mm. And if they were less resilient, they would have quit before. Mm. So a question I've got is, is that, so is, let me use this term, is good resilience in an organisation when people actually know the limits and are prepared to say no and I've had enough and stop? Mm. Yes, and there's a psychologist who does a lot of work in this space. Her name is Maureen Dollard, and she talks about the limit of individual resilience. And at a certain point, we need to teach employees to be resistant Mm -hmm. because enough is enough. And that's where that friction point between resources and well-being becomes important. Mm -hmm. You know, that often what people need is more resources, more time, more staff, or job design issues 
For example, you've got someone working in customer service who's dealing with aggressive customers. You can't do that 38 hours a week. Mm. So how do you rotate someone through those roles? I'm trying to sell to a couple of different workplaces about a rotational system so that people are in a trauma-facing role for a period of time but then have the opportunity to second somewhere else. But it's got to be an equivalent role Mm. because if it's seen as lesser, you know, it creates a stigma around saying I've actually reached my human limit. Mm. Because when we look at trauma resilience, there's a lot of protective factors, but then trauma is just traumatic by nature and there's just going to be a certain number of people who are impacted. And if we expect that someone... I mean, we need to look at things from a a whole of life cycle perspective. And in order to extend, you know, say a fire and rescue operator, you know, that they might have 10 years in their substantive role and then look at what are the other duties they can do if they need to step back from it Mm. rather than you're well and then you're sick, (laughs) (laughs) having more of an early intervention and rotational system. Mm. I've never heard it. I've never I've perhaps thought about resilience as a whole, but actually the aspect of job design, role clarity, that sounds like that's actually really important and useful in terms of, and it's a leadership issue at the end of the day. You've got to put the time and resources into that. It's, it's about creating that psychologically safe workplace. Mm-hmm. Often we just assume that it's sort of one or two our items when we come to think of psychological safety in the workplace, like no bullying, which is important, mm-hmm. but actually it's so much more, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. I mean, I think the important factor there is trust, that you've got to trust that your supervisor's got your back, mm-hmm. that you're, you're doing your best in the first instance. Part of it, I think, is also knowledge, that what I hear from clients in the counselling room is if they, they can go to their boss and talk about what's happening and they know that their boss understands their life, that that's really helpful, even though their supervisor or manager can't do anything about the problems. Just having that outlet and someone who is supportive, encouraging, non-judgmental has a huge impact on individual resilience. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes we have to, when people, you know, not willing to make those decisions for themselves, leadership does need to step in and and help do that, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a great opportunity for leaders to mentor people in well-being, to have good coaching conversations with people. And and one of the things that I do as part of my practice is a lot of leadership training on how to manage mental health at work. Mm. And often people are worried to talk about it because they're worried to say the wrong thing. But saying nothing is much worse than saying the wrong thing. And they also worry about not knowing how to fix that person, which is not at all the agenda either. It's about how do you create a space where people can talk about their problems Mm. and that you help them to feel heard and listened to, but move them into what can you do about it? Mm. Not to tell them what to do, but to help them to problem solve. Mm. And so it's not advice giving but it's looking at what are the options and and how do you put them into action and so when we look at why leaders so important in the workplace you know that that supportive leadership in being able to to coach and mentor people in in helping them to solve their own problems is huge Mm. yeah yeah wow we've certainly got in some place i wasn't expecting to today so that's been awesome (laughs) (laughs) what didn't the military teach you that you now find so useful when it comes to 
this environment of the workplaces you work when it comes to creating that safe workplace leadership? It didn't teach me the value of stability. <laughs> right. I was very lucky in my career in that I spent about 18 months of the six years deployed overseas. But I had three postings in that six-year period, one 12-month posting, one two-year posting, and then three years in the one place. But it was three 12-month postings each year. And so I'd wait until September to find out where I was going to be living in January. And, you know, friends gave up on me when I was deploying all the time because I was never home. And so you kind of you get used to just like making the most of where you're at. But I've been in the one spot now for four years. It's the longest I've lived anywhere since I was 17. And I love it. Like I love the friends that you have, that community, like you mentioned, you know, real community in the suburb that I'm living in. Mm. And I used to be quite critical of people who've grown up in the same suburb, you know, that they're friends with their childhood friends. And I'm like, how is that? (laughs) You haven't lived. But actually, like what a great life to have that Mm -hmm. stability and consistency And I think that if I had gotten more of that in the military, I would have had a much longer career. Hmm. Yeah. So stability being, I guess, a key contributor to being able to, it probably adds to resilience in a way, I guess, the resilience to keep going in circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So if you were had a group of emerging leaders in front of you today, you know, what would be your best advice for to them in terms of taking on more responsibility, leaning to leadership more every day? I think it's being prepared to have difficult conversations. Difficult conversations about bad behaviour. <laughs> Often people who are very good at their jobs, they're allowed to be a bit more volatile or push the boundaries a bit more and it creates chaos in the team. So being able to talk about those behaviours, you know, and having open and frank discussions, and you're able to do that because you've got rapport with people, you know, having a stable connection where people feel trusted and heard means that you can have really difficult conversations about mental health, well-being, performance, and including those team-based behaviours in that as well. Because when we want to talk to people about mental health at work, kind of the stable place that leaders have is around being responsible for well-being within the workplace, but also performance. And often when mental health is impacting on a person's abilities in the workplace, it's not necessarily whether or not they can do their job, but it's how they interact with others in order to do their job. And so being able to have those conversations around, like, I can appreciate where you're at, And at the same time, the way you spoke to your colleague is not okay. Mm. And so I think being able to have difficult conversations is part of it. In order to do that, you need to have good rapport with people, which takes time and it takes getting to know them as individuals. But it's also about creating a culture where feedback is important and we, we have informal and formal feedback processes so people know their strengths and it's okay to have weaknesses and so when they make mistakes like that is okay because it's something that we grow from not something that that we're going to punish you for Hmm. yeah Yeah. when i think about the recruiting processes that often ask the question of when somebody's had a challenge you know what do they do about it what do they see as a challenge but it's almost like that's the only time we ever talk about those things 
it's like this value when you turn up in a workplace or even in a new team within the same workplace and say, actually, here are my strengths, but actually these are the things that I actually have a challenge with. These are my blind spots, for example, or the ones I've found. Mm. Maybe they're not all of them. Maybe I need to, you know, if there are other things that come along the way, please tell me. Absolutely. We need to give people permission sometimes to give us feedback. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that's where those 360-degree feedback tools can be really helpful. Mm. But it's got to be done in a context of, encouraging self-awareness because if that's the first time someone receives information about their blind spots that's where you're likely to see that defensiveness because they've never been told that before why would they agree with that Mm. and an easy way to make sense of it is i'm being bullied or there are a bunch of whinges or you know other ways to devalue what that feedback actually says Mm. yeah so is there an easy way to help people you know be less defensive no. Right. <laughs> I was hoping there was some silver bullet for that. Silver bullet, yeah. I think it starts with gentleness mm-hmm. and unconditional positive regard. You know, as lame as that might sound, people have to feel safe mm. in order to be vulnerable, and that's what you're asking from them. Yeah. I think when a leader models that, so if we want, say, our new leaders to build that awareness, they need to have someone above them that is modelling, here are my strengths and my weaknesses, that they're prepared to be vulnerable and to to be open about that. Mm. You know, really, it's like talking about mental health. How do we get people to open up? Well, there's some appropriate self-disclosure there mm. and talking about your own experiences and being a bit vulnerable is often a really powerful way to, to encourage someone to talk about what's going on for them. Mm. Yeah, that's a great thought. You've spun off a whole bunch of stuff for me, Mel. (laughs) It's been a great conversation and there's a couple of things I'd love to unpack with you more at another time. But I just thank you so much for giving up your time today to be on the podcast and we're going to finish up with the rapid-fire questions. As I say to people, they they don't necessarily have to have rapid-fire answers. Mm -hmm. But the first question is uh, fill in the blank. Leadership is? Time-consuming. Right. <laughs> Never had anybody say that before, but you're right. <laughs> Absolutely. To do, it, to do it right, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. What's your go-to book on leadership? I'm not sure that I have a go-to book on leadership per se. Right. Books that I find really helpful as far as educating leaders about what my agenda is, which is always mental health. <laughs> right. You know, things like The Happiness Advantage. You know, there's lots of books that apply positive psychology in the workplace that I think Mm. leaders can really take something away from. Mm. Mm. That's a good angle. I had not thought of books like that, Happiness Trap, Happiness Advantage, or or those books as Mm. a leader reading them to understand what others need. Mm. Absolutely. That's a great perspective. Just to add on to that you know one of the big challenges I see for leaders is when they're volatile themselves that if you get someone who's reactive even if it's occasional that has a huge impact on trust and so probably the first thing that leaders need to do is to regulate their own emotions first Mm. Mm. absolutely next question I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career how to advocate for what I thought was right it, it took me a while to figure that out. Yeah. Have you got the answer to that now? I do all right. You do all right. <laughs> Great. 
You get a call from a team member, a crisis just erupted in your company. What are your first words to that person? Talk to me about what's happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. And lastly, is there a go-to quote on leadership that might have had some influence on your leadership style or, or mental health, wherever you want to go with that? Two. One is that attitude reflects leadership. Mm-hmm. And the other one is that everyone contributes to morale, whether they choose to or not. Mm. Yeah. Wow. They're good. Mm. Are they attributable to any particular person? I'm not sure about the second one. Mm-hmm. The first one is from a movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's true. I mean, leaders set the tone of the workplace. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Mel, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for again for giving up your time and we'll put in the show notes how people can find you in your ongoing practice and and I wish you all the best. Go well. Thanks, Martin. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it. <laughs>